Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr Maddie Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death brought to you by Goalout. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In this first episode, I'm joined by my old friend and crime author, Dr Paul Carson. We're going to talk about my journey into pathology and what being a pathologist is all about. Morning, Paul. How's things? So I'm remembering uh, a very uh, better time when you and I sat in a, in a restaurant with a, a bottle of wine nearly empty. And you were telling me a little bit about life as a pathologist. And I was fascinated to know why you had elected to go into the route of dealing with the dead, whereas I spent all of my medical career dealing with the living. So I, I, I've forgotten what you said at the time. So maybe you'll just remind me again of it all. Yeah, it's a strange thing to journey into forensic because, as you know, as medical students, we spend six years being taught how to reconstruct the body to make it better. And then all of a sudden you get to the end of those six years and you think, maybe this isn't for me. You have these cases, and you probably have them as well, that you just remember. And I just remember being in accident and emergency. And as I say, it was just... An intern, I probably had been in the job about a week and an old woman was brought in and she'd been knocked down by a car and she had severe leg injuries. And I was busy thinking, good Lord, what do, what do I, what, what can I do? Physically, I can't really do anything. And I remember the doctors in A&E discussing this or arguing about who was going to take care of her. And the orthopaedic surgeon was looking at her legs and going, well, I don't know if I can do anything. The, the guy from neurosurgery was saying, well, she's got a head injury, but I don't... And I was thinking, well, please, God, will somebody do something for this poor woman? <laughs> and I think at that stage, I thought, I don't want to be playing God. I don't want to be the person who goes, well, I'll take her or you take her or somebody will take her or we'll try and make her better. And I thought, no. And that's when I came in, That's when I thought about going into pathology. How did that career pathway pan out? It was one of those moves that you're never... Again, you're never quite sure are you making the right decision. And I was extremely lucky in that I'd applied for a post as a trainee in Stophill Hospital in Glasgow, which, you know, wasn't one of the main stream hospitals. And there was a new consultant in charge there and he decided to take a chance on me because I didn't look like a conventional doctor. Even at that stage, I tended to not dressed the same way as all the, the other doctors were, were dressing out. Uh, and he said, well, we'll take you on. And I loved it from the day I walked in the door, but I hadn't a clue what was going on. Not a scooby. And I used to look down this microscope and they would say, right, to, this morning we're doing, we're looking at small biopsies. 
And these are the small pieces of tissue, as you know, that they take when the, the surgeons are in doing their, you know, rooting about, looking for tumours or whatever it is and trying to work out what, what on earth is going wrong with this person. And they take these tiny little pieces of tissue and these will be processed in the laboratory and handed over to the, the pathologist to have a look at it down and make a diagnosis. And I used to sit fascinated. I was fascinated. Looking down the microscope and I was going, this is marvellous, absolutely marvellous. All these nice pictures and the lovely colours. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, I had no idea what was going on. I just sat looking down the microscope thinking, one day it will all become clear. And amazingly, one day it did all become clear. I looked down the microscope and I suddenly could see what the pictures were. Instead of all this jumble of colours, which were pretty, very pretty, but suddenly I could see... Ah, this is bowel tissue. Oh, this is uterine curettings. All these fancy names that everybody else in the department were flinging about. I was suddenly going, now I understand what's going on. But the main thing about that was, and that much as I loved that side of it, that's when I entered the mortuary for the first time. And as you know, as a medical student, they don't like to talk about people dying. So they, you never, don't get to grips with death at that stage. And it was only once I came into pathology... And I was suddenly introduced to, this is another part of the job. And I thought, oh, I hadn't really thought about we would have to deal with dead bodies. It never even crossed my mind. But that first morning, I went down to that mortuary and I thought, oh, this, this is fascinating. This is, this, is, this is what I really want to get to grips with. And that first PM, and I was just amazed. And I thought, well... This is it. This is now I've found a place where I want to be. And I think a place where I can use the skills. <laughs> I can try and make a difference here. I can try and find out what happened to this person. And I think that was when I decided that pathology was going to be the route for me. How did that move from pathologist as a hospital pathologist into the forensic pathology territory, which is a whole new territory altogether? As a hospital pathologist, you're on a career path. As you know, in, in medicine, once you're on that, that train, it keeps going. And I was looking forward and thinking, yeah, this is very, very nice. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll sit the exams, the MRC path, and then I'll look for a consultant's post somewhere. And it was only at that point I started to look around and think, well, is that going to be any different from what I'm doing? You know, do I, do I need any other skills? And I had, again, it was one of those things that I knew people died in road traffic accidents. Well, I'm not stupid. I know people commit suicide. I'd lived in Glasgow a long, long time and I knew you don't go up dark alleys and you don't go to the east end of Glasgow and you don't do things because bad things happen and people die. But where did those bodies go? It didn't come into the hospital. And it was only then I started to think, well, do these people go? And somebody told me, well, there's a forensic pathology department and there's a city mortuary in Glasgow. And I went, a city mortuary? Well, why, well, why don't we know about this? As pathologists who do post-mortems, why do I not know about this city mortuary? And then I began to inquire into it and I met one of the forensic pathologists, John Clark, and he came down to our hospital because by some strange quirk, somebody who died in a road traffic accident had been brought into hospital and had died in hospital. And so rather than transport the body to this city mortuary, whatever it was, the body was brought down to our mortuary and John came in to do the post-mortem. 
And again, I stood there, you know, mouth open, gaping, and going, really? Oh, this now, oh, this is another level. This is another level of death I didn't even know existed. And I said, can, can I come Can I come and have a look in this city mortuary? I don't know what I expected. And he said, well, I don't know about that, but, you, you know, go and see the professor. And I went to the professor in pathology and I said, um, would it be possible for me to go to forensic medicine for a couple of weeks? I want to see what happens and, you know, how you do a post-mortem on somebody who's been murdered, somebody who'd committed suicide, somebody who's been in an accident. And um, he said, um, leave it with me, I'll... I'll phone around and I'll get back to you. They phoned me back that afternoon and he said, um, you know, you said uh, you want to go for a fortnight. He said, I can arrange that. He said, um, what about a career in forensic medicine? I went, oh, no, 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 no. I said, a fortnight. And I thought, this man must really hate me. He wants me out of mainstream pathology and he wants to get rid of me to this place, wherever it is, Narnia, <laughs> through the back of a wardrobe, into this city mortuary. And I said, OK, I'll go down. And I went in and... And it was like Narnia. I opened that door and I walked into the mortuary. Now, you've been in this, the mortuary in, in Dublin, Paul. I have You know indeed, what yes. that's like. I remember it very fondly. The, the Dublin mortuary was very small and the Glasgow mortuary was much bigger because Glasgow was a very nasty place in those days and they needed a bigger mortuary. I found this mystical city mortuary and it was, it was slap bang in the middle of Glasgow. As I said, went, went through this door and we had, there was three tables, big, large tables. And in those days, again, things weren't the same as they are nowadays, but there were bodies on all the tables. And John took me over and he said, this one's a, a suicidal hanging. This one's a, a road traffic accident. And this one here is just what they called a drop dead. And I said, what's a, what's a drop dead? And he said, well, that's when somebody literally just drops dead. There's no medical history, nothing, nobody knows anything. They're found dead somewhere, they're brought in here, and we do a post-mortem. Those two weeks were, for me, magical, absolutely magical. After all those years of angst thinking, have I done the right thing? I suddenly thought, this is where I want to be. And so I got on the phone back to the, the professor and I said, Remember you said about a job? I said, I'll take it. And that was me, now a forensic pathologist. Well, on my way to becoming a forensic pathologist, I had a lot, a lot to learn and had to learn it pretty, pretty quickly. I'm assuming out loud that you had to actually go to crime scenes to to be part of the the initial investigation that uh, any forensic pathologist in Glasgow in those days would have been involved in, even as a trainee. When I came into forensic, and I probably hadn't been there a wet weekend, and I had seen various deaths which I hadn't ever seen before, and I was getting used to dealing with the bodies, and then the professor in forensic medicine came in one day and said, would you go down to the scene? And I said, are you sure you want me to go? And he said, look, I wouldn't ask you to go if I didn't think you'd be able to, to cope with it. I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, try not to do anything too much. Try not to get in the way. <laughs> Keep your hands in your pockets and watch where you're standing. Ask somebody where they want you to go. And I, I was more concerned about 
going, you know, fainting when I saw this body and whatever it was. And he said, look, it's probably going to be very straightforward. The area that the body's been found in is a well-known area for where drug addicts stay. It's probably just a drug death. Now, as it was, it did actually turn out to be a drug death. But when I went down to this tenement building, and it was, again, Glasgow, raining. You know, it's, if you ever watched Taggart, it would look like a scene out of Taggart. You know, rain coming down and this bedraggled little woman getting out of a car and wandering about saying, where on earth do I go? And then you see the policeman standing at the at the the door of the, the close. And I went over and I said, hello, I'm Dr Cassidy. I've come to see the, the deceased. I was trying to be very respectful. And he went, all right, in there, second on the left. Where's the professor? And I said, he sent me. Wouldn't go in there if I was you, Hen. Not a sight for a woman. And I said, be that as it may, I, I'm the person who's been asked to come here. And meanwhile, I was thinking, I don't know if I do or do want to be here. And so he said, right, okay. And just turned round and shouted over his shoulder, the pathologist is here, it's a woman. And I went, right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this is this is going to go down very very well in Glasgow. A woman turning up at the scene, and I went in, and of course the the senior investigating officer, the superintendent, was there, and he was a little bit more receptive about me coming in, and talked me through what I, what he wanted me to do, which was precious little. I think he just wanted to be. It was they had to have a pathologist in there just to have a look at the body before they moved the body. And I was just very aware of, I was just completely out of my normal surroundings. And I tentatively went through to the living room and there was a body lying there. And he'd obviously been lying there for a few days. And again, I had never seen a putrefying body before. I mean, I'd seen mouldy cheese in the fridge quite often, actually. But I had never seen a body decomposing. Never smelt that smell. And you never forget it. So it's your first time and it's you never forget it. And he just said, well, that's that's him there. And I had a look and I thought, well, what do, He's what, pretty what dead. do I say? What do I do? And, you know, pretty obvious to everybody in the close that he was dead. <laughs> the women up the stairs had complained about the smell, which was why he'd been found. Yeah. And I sort of went over and they said, I... In Glasgow parlance, it's probably just a junkie who's overdosed. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, nothing, just have a look. He said, look, there he's there. His jeans are part down. There's a syringe at the side of him. Um, don't think there's anything else worth doing. Do you want to do anything else? And I was busy looking around here and thinking, I just want to go home. I just want out of here. And he just said, right, um, turned around to the boys and went, put him in a bag, get him down to the mortuary. Can you do the post-mortem this afternoon? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, he said, right, we'll be there in an hour. And that was it. And that was my first foray into going out to a scene. And in those days, when I wasn't doing anything, I did tend to try, you know, I did try, tend to try not to disturb anything. And in those days, it wasn't quite as important as it has become. Things have changed dramatically in the 30 years since that. But that was my first foray into seeing a body inside you. And of course, it would have to be a decomposing body. But there you go. You might as well get thrown into the deep end, wouldn't you? Yeah. The detective in charge decided that this man had died of an overdose. How was that confirmed? Or did you find anything different when, when the autopsy happened? Yeah, 
there was well with death investigation it is a process and the process is a body is found um the police are usually involved in a lot of the the cases that i deal with even if it's a simple death now even as i say it was a sudden death um if it's sudden unexpected often when somebody phones for an ambulance the police turn up as well so immediately becomes a police case so the police are often involved very very much from the beginning and they have to make a make the decision on who they think they need to be involved in dealing with this death and most of these cases it's going to be they need a forensic pathologist and as I say in Glasgow it's quite unique in that the forensic pathologists are all closeted together in this little city mortuary and everything is brought to them and brought to that that central mortuary but the 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 visit to the scene it just gives you some kind of idea of what to expect when you come to do the postmortem and as you say going into that house and seeing your tenants super lager you know the the good stuff the the stuff that was guaranteed to make you make you you know get the effects of the alcohol as quickly as possible so you're already starting to think about what's going to be possibly relevant when i come to do the postmortem from me seeing that body at the scene from getting a little snippet of how they lived the circumstances they lived in and possibly what happened up until you know their death i'm already beginning to formulate my differential diagnosis so going way back to that very first one i knew that his living conditions were not ideal there was a, a drug history he lived alone obviously because his body hadn't been discovered for a few days beginning to get a picture of what this person's life was like so what am i going to be looking for that's going to help the police in their investigation of this death and a case of like that the the scene itself there's not much in the way of forensic evidence other than any drug paraphernalia that might be related to uh, drug taking and in, in glasgow invariably it was going to be heroin so when i went back to the mortuary waiting for this body to come through i would get my little notebook out and skim through it just to make sure there wasn't anything else i should be looking for but every postmortem is exactly the same and for the forensic pathologist it's the outside of the body that tells us a lot more often than the inside as coming from a hospital background where the answer is going to lie in your innards you know i'm going to look for your 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 breast cancer inside you i'm going to look for the heart attack i'm going to get, you know pluck out your heart and look at your heart I'm going to look for the infection I'm going to look for your big spleen because you've got rampant infection which is giving you blood poisoning. So I'm going to be looking at things inside you. The outside is just the casing. Whereas with forensic pathology, the outside is going to tell me so much more. Coming from doing a hospital postmortem where you go, yes, he's blonde, blue-eyed, 5 foot 8, slim build, um had an operation before we bit pale right let's get in there yep, suddenly yep. you're in great detail you're going well his hair's you know bleached blonde he's got you know streaks he's got you know the eyes are blue but they're very badly bloodshot there's marks on his face he's got very severe acne everything is pointing to the lifestyle of this person every single mark has to be noted down every large freckle can be become relevant and you never know what is going to be relevant until you get to the very end
And even then, sometimes you still don't know what what on earth is going on. But you never know. So with the, with this case, when I'm thinking about this being a drug addict, what I'm looking for are injection sites, something that tells me this person is a drug addict. And in those days, it was much easier because they still had the, the big needles that they were using. There was no such thing as, as needle exchange in those days. There wasn't all the, the drug treatment centres that eventually grew up in, in Glasgow over the years I was there. And so you got the, the typical, you know, it's the, the train spotting moments, you know, the, the track marks and the arms. You know, there was no finesse about it. You're a drug addict, you get it in however you can and damn the consequences. And unfortunately, the consequences were damning in this, this particular instance. So every little mark I could see, the problem was because he'd been dead for a few days, Finding these little marks was very, very difficult and you really need to get up very, very close and personal. And when I tell you the smell, I don't know if you ever got to to go out to a, a decomposing body or you ever got to savour the the delights of a decomposing body. Well, but I, it's well not I, 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 I did once in Australia when, when the, they asked me to go out and confirm that the person was dead. I I remember it vividly. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, and you don't forget it. And you never forget that no, smell. No, 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 no. Um, it is pretty awful. And in those days, um, things used to take me a lot longer because you know I was being very meticulous and I wasn't sure what I was doing. I didn't want to miss anything or go wrong. So I probably spent a lot longer with this poor man than than I really needed to. But I was intent on making sure that I didn't miss anything because this was my first big one, my big, my big first. You know, I'd been to the scene. So this this was all mine. You know, I was going to be responsible for everything that happened from now on. And it took, you know, possibly about two hours going over that, that body. And, and there wasn't any, you know, it wasn't he'd been beaten up. Um, he had a few bruises here and there because... He, he was a drug taker and a drinker, so he would, you know, have a few drinks and fall about, you know, like everybody does. But so he had a few bruises here and there. Difficult, again, to see because the skin was so discoloured. And, uh, and over the years, I discovered that to to decide whether something was a bruise or it was just an area of discoloration, you had to actually cut into the skin and see if there was bleeding underneath. And... I was trying to follow the, 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 the needle track marks and see if I could find a fresh needle mark on his arm, which would again uh, help in the diagnosis that this was an overdose and it was some, you know, he'd taken the drug shortly before he'd collapsed and died. So as I say, that took me about a couple of hours pouring over that body. Then once you get to the inside, that's what I was familiar with from the, my training as a pathologist. So you're you're familiar with looking to see how, you know, what, what the lungs are looking like. You know, how have they reacted to his lifestyle? Was he a heavy smoker? So the, the lungs were showing those effects. Heart pristine. And he probably had a big heart, a big lovely heart. Probably a lovely man, as his mother would say. But everything else was, was showing slight signs of wear and tear. Remarkably, liver was perfectly normal. The, the, the point comes, though, with, and I'm fascinated, you said... It took two hours to do the postmortem. Was that two hours in total internal and external, or did you spend two hours examining the outside of the body? Oh, I spent two hours on the outside. I mean, wow. as I say, I, I, I wasn't going to miss anything on this, this one. And as I say, it was quite difficult because I was frightened that 
something else could have happened to him. Yeah, yeah. So you can't assume just because somebody is a drug addict, somebody's a drinker, you know, somebody smokes that their death has got anything to do with any of those things. And so you're you're just working your way through thinking, what if? What if this had happened to him? What if that had happened to him? So I was making sure I hadn't, you know, I wasn't going to miss it. It was like my very first post-mortem ever when I came into pathology. That took me a whole day. And the man had only died from a pulmonary embolism, for God's sakes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, I had speeded up tremendously over the years, but I still certainly was, wasn't going to miss anything on this. But, I mean, nowadays, I mean, if you're doing, if I was doing, you know, a, a multiple stabbing, you know, that could take the best part of a day, you know, counting holes. You know, it's, 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 it's laborious. That case, yet, yeah, it took me two hours on the outside of the body because uh, I was just trying to make sure I didn't miss anything. But over the years, things have become much more complex and the type of cases and the types of scenarios have become much more complex. But going back to that initial one, the diagnosis was made on a blood sample because, again, routinely during the course of a post-mortem examination, um, I'll take all the little bits of tissues that I would normally have taken even when I was a hospital pathologist so I can check that he didn't have heart disease, he didn't have you know problems with his lungs. And, you know, it's a case of ruling out things as you go along. But getting a blood sample and sending it off for toxicology came back with high levels of heroin. And again, it becomes one of those cases, well, was it intentional or was it, you know, it just took too much on that particular case? He'd actually been in prison uh, on drug charges and had come out and, as they always do, gone back to his old ways, took the level of or the amount of heroin that he would normally have taken pre-being in prison for a few weeks and shot up and unfortunately he'd lost his tolerance to the drug, which is not uncommon, and had accidentally overdosed. And there's something, it's a terrible thing to say, but you have to, to teach drug addicts in prison that they can't go back to their old ways immediately. They have to they have to build up again, build up their tolerance again. Because you know you can't you can't change them overnight. But then so that was that was the start of, you know, getting my foot into the door, literally, of out to scenes, seeing the bodies in situ, seeing, you know, what I had to do and, and, and working from that, you know, taking the body all the way through from where they were found dead all the way back to the mortuary. There was one case I remember you uh, were involved in in in, uh, South Dublin. There was a woman found dead. The story was that she was supposed to have hanged herself. And you found something completely different. In all my years, what I've discovered is that it's best to, to think simply. Things usually are what they appear to be. But on occasion, just sometimes things just don't quite sit right. And this was a woman who had a ligature around her neck and the scenario was supposed to be a suicidal hanging. Now, I've seen many bodies in many areas, inside, outside, in lofts, in barns, in bedrooms, in wardrobes, whatever, whatever people choose to commit suicide. But normally, when they're found, they're suspended. Uh, sometimes the ligature does give way, but that's not that often that happens. Was she face down or on her back? Well, 
This became an issue because when I came in, she was lying on her back, but the paramedics had been in. And so, of course, we're looking at a scene that has been disturbed. So we have two disturbances. We have family finding her. Could they possibly have done something? We have the paramedics coming in and they often move bodies. They often have to have to get in. They have to get access. So they have to, to move somebody over a bit so we can get to the other side of them. And so we're, we're all aware of that. And so meanwhile, I'm saying you better check and see if anybody has moved her because this doesn't look quite right. But it, there may be a very simple explanation for all of this. And that's where it starts. And that's where the investigation then starts to move forward. So we have to start to look at all the all the possibilities, and all the po and, and if something doesn't quite fit, is there a particular reason for that? Going back to my old colleague um, Rod Burnett, when I was a when I was a baby pathologist, when he was training me all those years be before that, and he had said, you know, this the theory of Occam's razor. You know, if you can find something, you know, an explanation that covers every, all the abnormalities that you see, well, that's the most likely answer to the, the, the whatever question you've posed. And so I've always been thinking about that, and I've always thought there's probably something very, very simple. There's a very simple explanation for why this doesn't look like a routine hanging. And that's probably one of the good things about going to the scene, because once you're at the, at the scene, you're right at the very kernel of the investigation you're right there and you can start to see how the investigation is going to go and you can have an input into that. I remember going to one that was called the Hoot and they said a man's been found dead and he's been found in his flat and the next door neighbour heard a bang. She called the police and the police rushed you know, to the flat, got there and opened the door and the man was lying in front of the, the window and the window was shattered and he was lying on the floor in broken glass and he had a, an injury to his chest and they thought that there had been some kind of an explosion which they hadn't quite sorted out yet and a shard of glass had come from the window and stabbed him. Oh, right, yeah. That's an unusual thinking, one. I thought this is very unusual, very unusual. I took a step over to the body and had a look. Big gaping hole in his chest. And at the corner of my eye, I see this young policeman sort of going, waving over to me. And I said, yes, you know, can I help you? And he said, uh, there's a big gun on the floor under this chair. <laughs> Let's go back to this. A big bang. And then he's found with a big hole in his chest. There's a gun over there. I said, this was a suicide. The, the gun had skittered out his hands and slid under the chair. And I was thinking, you know, some people have got great imagination. You know, this explosion, for whatever known reason, and the glass shatters and, you know, the, a piece of glass, you know, pierces his chest and causes his death. And I thought, that was a brilliant story. It was a much better story than the real one. But, you know, sometimes you just have to say, no, there's usually a simple explanation for everything. I had another case where we had, again, a woman found dead in bed. She was in her 70s, bless her. She had a long history and it would be one of your typical cases, Paul. An old dear, you've been seeing her for, for years. Dickie Hart, you've been giving her her medication. She's been taking her medication, but she's become a bit more breathless and, you know, hadn't been going out because everything was an effort. 
and the family came round. She was found lying over the side of the bed and they had pulled her up and sat her up and put the pillows round about her and all the rest of it. And when she died, she'd soiled herself. So the daughter changed her all and, and got her all dressed up and everything. So, of course, we I came out to the scene and they were saying, well, this is how she was found. And I'm going, oh. You know, it was very, everything was very, very neat. And again, the, the policeman beside me was going, it's just awful neat. Do you not think it's awful neat? And I'm going, yeah, well, it is awfully neat, you know. <laughs> to die in your bed just like that, you know, sitting straight up and, you know, your arms at your side, you know, slightly, you know, held in your lap and the, the bedclothes pristine round about you and, you know, you're a nice nightie on. And we got her back to the mortuary and um, I was having a look at her and she had a mark around her neck. And I thought... Oh dear God, the old dear's been strangled. I got the police over and went, look, she's got a mark around her neck. And they were going, oh dear God. And he was going, I knew there was something wrong. I knew it, I knew it. When I walked in there, I knew somebody had been fiddling with that scene. And I said, look, right, calm down. We've got it under control. We'll take all the forensic evidence. We'll do the post-mortem. I'd get to the post-mortem and it got to the, the really important bit. We've got to the neck, neck dissection. This is the most important part. Not a dicky, nothing. Not a mark. So roll back, look at the neck. And I thought, I know there's a very simple explanation for this, but somebody must have tampered with her at the scene. And at that time, polo necks were very fashionable. Right. <laughs> and sometimes, in those days, you know, the material wasn't great. And you know, after you've worn it, the polo neck became a kind of a cowl neck, this big baggy thing. So a lot of people took to either using an elastic band to keep the the, pole, the neck in, in place round your neck and they tied something round it. And I said, go back to the daughter and ask her what the mother was wearing when she found her. And it, it was simple as that. The mother had not been feeling well, so she'd laid down in the bed and she was dressed in a pole of neck and a, re, and a re slack. When they took her off, she'd a pole of neck, she'd kept it in place. She'd a, she'd a rubber band, an elastic band round her neck, <laughs> keeping her pole of neck up. And it was something as simple as that. But we all knew that something was not quite right. Now, it turned out to be just the family were a wee bit embarrassed because of how she was she, when they found her. And they were trying to clean her up and do their best for her. But we can tell, <laughs> I can tell, you know, even simply moving a hand sometimes because I can look at the, the pattern of lividity and say, somebody's moved that and they go, no, we didn't. Nobody touched her. They go, somebody has touched her. I know, I know. And I'm still fascinated about this, this woman lying on the floor uh, her body hadn't been moved by the paramedics, the, the rumpled bedclothes, and everyone going, there's something not right here. Did you make the final decision only on the autopsy table, or was it before you even left the house? Well, I knew as soon as I, I knew when I was there that the likelihood was that this was not a suicide. But you have to prove it. There's no point in saying, well, I've got a feeling in my water, that doesn't hold up in court. You've got to have the proof. You've got to find the evidence that supports what your diagnosis is. So, of course, from my point of view, my next stage was going to be the post-mortem. And that was going to tell me a lot about how our death had come about. And, of course, again, because I had done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hangings, unfortunately. It's a fact of life or a fact of death that, that this happens so frequently. But it does. And I had seen many of them. And so I know what the signs are. I know what I'm looking for. I know what would normally be expected and again, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of strangulations. Now, strangulations aren't that common. And it's usually 
most commonly it's going to be women that are strangled. It's a case of power because they're overtaken by somebody much more powerful than them. And unfortunately, it causes a lot more damage to the neck than a, than a straightforward hanging scenario. So once I had done the post-mortem examination, I knew that this was most likely a strangulation. But again, I'm always one to consider that there are other possibilities, that there's parts, perhaps something about this that we're missing. There's, there's something crucial that will make it all seem right, will make it what we all thought it might be at the beginning. What were the changes that you saw that made you decide that this was a homicide rather than a, a low-level suicide? Well, when she'd been found, there was a flex lying across her neck. It wasn't tight and the flex was broken. The mark on her neck suggested that a flex had been pulled tight about her neck at some point. But in these kind of a cases, we do a very detailed dissection of the neck and it's usually done at the end of the post-mortem. And what we do is a dissection that's done when we've tried as much as possible that we're not going to damage the tissues and we're not going to cause unnecessary bruising. People often ask, can you bruise somebody after death? Yes, you can. Bruise is just, you know, fluid blood leaking out of a, of a damaged blood vessel. So, of course, you won't get the big, you know, it won't spread and you won't get the colour changes, but you can cause a bruise because that's all a bruise is. It's leaking of blood out of a damaged blood vessel. So you could do this. If you're not careful in your examination, you can actually cause bruising in the neck. We have to, be, we have to do it in what we call a, a blood-free area. So we have to make sure that there's no, the, there's no fluid blood in the blood vessels in the neck when we do our dissection. And when I was dissecting the neck, there was extensive bruising in the neck, in the, in the, the soft tissue of the neck. And also there was damage to the fragile larynx. And it is very fragile, but it's well protected by these, you know, the big broad muscles on either side of your neck. And there was more damage to the hyoid bone and the Adam's apple than I would normally expect in a hanging. Now, as I say, if it had been a low level hanging, you can get a bit more because there's more stress on the neck for a longer period of time. And therefore, you can get a lot more bruising. You can get a lot more damage to the, the voice box area. But the extent of damage, to, to my mind, was much more even than that. And it was more akin to a manual strangulation, a throttling type incident. OK, but so again, that changed it completely. Well, it, it confirmed to me what I thought we were dealing with. But again, I don't like jumping to conclusions. And I like there to be other evidence that backs things up. I always say to the, you know, the guardie and the, the police, if you're going to court on a case that depends solely on the, the pathology evidence, you've got a pretty weak case. So I had to go back to the forensic scientists and told them that these are the possible scenarios that we have. So can you do anything to explore these as possibilities? And they were marvellous, actually. They actually took away the doors and they tried to set up a scenario where it was a full suspension hanging. Now, if it was a full suspension hanging, then the flex must have broken. So one of the things they had to do was to check whether that, that, that flex could, could carry her weight and whether, would it give. Then they had to look at the possibility of um, finding an area where you could, you could actually tie the, 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 the flex 
to so that she could be suspended from a lower level. So they were going through all of that. And, and so I was coming forward saying, well, in my opinion, the damage to the neck is much more severe than you would expect had this been a suicide. Certainly much more extensive than this been a full suspension hanging and more, even more extensive than if, you, if this was a low suspension hanging. Could I exclude low suspension hanging completely? I would have to say no. But in my opinion, I thought that um, manual strangulation was more likely. So that was up for the up to this forensic scientist to come in and say, we've checked all of the the apparatus, if you like to call it, um, all the paraphernalia that was there. We've checked everything out, and we can exclude that this was a full suspension hanging. We can exclude as far as possible that this was a low suspension hanging. And so we were all coming together. So it's not that just it's all based on just one person. You've got to make sure that things corroborate. You've got to corroborate your evidence. And at the end of the day, I can only go to court and say, this is what I found. And based on my experience and my knowledge, research that's been carried out by people who are much more intelligent than I am, I have come to the opinion that this is more likely a case of manual strangulation and put that to the court. And it's up to the court. I'm going back to the bit, Mary, where you talked about that she had been throttled. Now, in my in my mind, I'm, I'm imagining hands around her neck. And yes. from the little bit of forensic pathology that I did in my undergraduate days, um, I would be looking for sort of nail marks in the neck or, or indentations to, to support that. Presumably at the autopsy you did, there was nothing like that. I mean, there was no sort of gimme. There was nothing that sort of said, ah, there's a, there's a big nail mark stuck in there. Sometimes you can be lucky and you can get you know, the, a full house, if you like. Yeah. You can get all, <laughs> yes, the, yes. all the marks that say, oh, this is definitely one of the... I mean, if it was that easy, you'd all be doing it. <laughs> but it wasn't that easy. <laughs> it's not that easy. And sometimes the changes are a bit more subtle. And... It's a fingertip bruising you're looking for because if you if you, if you just think about it, if you take a band of material and press it against something, the bruising you will get will be a band of bruising. But if you get bruising around that area, so further up in the neck and further down in the neck, and it's kind of a higgledy piggledy, and some of them are some are small bruises, some are bigger bruises. Then you know it means that something else has been pressing into that neck. And then the most common thing is someone's hand or hands. And it's just piecing it together. And, and a lot of it does come from experience because you've seen you've seen the classic, you know, with the fingernail marks and the scratches on the neck, and you've seen all of that. But as I said, life is, life's not always that simple and straightforward. And death certainly is not always simple and straightforward. And so you have to just be aware that there is a range. And um, you have to, to look at the findings and say, well, on the balance of probability, is that more akin to accident, suicide or homicide? And that's, that's a game we play every single day with every death. Some of them are fairly straightforward and you can put them into that box immediately. Others need a little bit more probing to find out exactly where you think in this scheme of things that sometimes things could be an accident, could be a suicide and sometimes you have to entertain the possibility that it's a homicide.
the question that everyone wants to know is who did it and is it always and and is it as we all think somebody in the family it's one of those things that people are always frightened about who they'll meet in the dark night (laughs) (laughs) well just hope it's not not anybody you know because you're more at risk from somebody you know than somebody you don't know and in this case um that that part of it I don't get involved in and that's probably one of the things that's one of the reasons why I can cope with what I do um, or, or, or could cope with it but in this case all of it pointed towards it being the husband and um, the police had I mean the the amount of work they put into this case was incredible incredible and he was the man who stood trial and he was found guilty of the murder of his wife on that particular occasion it was a textbook example of how the pathology, the science, and the police investigation all all come together, and you know we get to this, we get to the point where we can present something in court, and God, God help the poor jury. We just dump it all on them and say, right, go on, you determine it. But I know that you haven't just been the state pathologist for Ireland and dealing with homicides here. I know that you've done work in places like Bosnia. You have a great enthusiasm for it. You're an inspiration to somebody. Why did you leave it so quickly? I thought thought that you'd retired far too early. No, I think you come. There's a time that you decide that it's time to go. And I always think it's, it's better to go, jump out before you're pushed out. And I can see there's things changing and, and forensic is changing and forensic investigations are changing. And I've often said that it's not because of any of the cases, but in fact, that's not entirely true because I think the last case I did was the Anna Kriegel case. And as I said, I've been able to get by because I always think that these bad things happen to people and they don't happen to the majority of us. And I think... That one in particular, because I, I must have just put in my hand in my notice not long after that, it was the thought that dealing with children dying uh, and violent deaths is, is always difficult for everyone. None of us can say, oh, yeah, you, you know, you get used to that. You, you never really get used to it. You, you, we're professionals, so we deal with it. But it's when you have young people being killed so violently by young people and I think that's when I thought, do you know something? The world's changing and perhaps it's time for me to change and get out of it as well and leave it to other people. And I think that was the kind of one that I thought, oh, you know, sometimes you have to accept that there are bad things out there. There's very few bad people. In, in real, real truth, there are very few bad people. But sometimes when you come across them, you just think, oh, Really? Really. So I think it was just time for me to go. Well, Paul, thanks for having a chat with me. And hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll be able to chat with some other experts and we'll have death investigation. See you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Life and Death with me, Dr. Mary Cassidy. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to Neve McCulloch, the forensic archaeologist, 
and together we'll go searching for the bodies.